0: Hello and welcome to episode 310 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is a double murder from the east of England and was researched and written by listener Matt. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Let me begin, as always, by thanking all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That is Jitka Favrakova Naomi Pilling, and Karen Murray. Thank you so much for your support as always. Today's show comes from Vintage Cash Cow which makes selling your old valuables less of an effort and they've paid out a whopping over 10 million pounds to customers. Sign up and you'll get a free postage pack then fill a the box for Vintage Cash Cow or book a Collection both at no cost. You can send jewellery, cameras, coins, vintage toys and a load of other bits. Within a week, you'll have a cash offer, and there's no twist in the tail. You can accept the valuation and enjoy a fresh start, knowing your items won't go to waste, or get them returned for free. The clock is ticking to earn extra on your first box. Vintage Cash Cow is offering a £20 bonus for listeners with the code TRUE. Just head to vintagecashcow.co.uk now Enter the code TRUE on the sign-up page and get £20 extra when you sell. That's vintagecashcow.co.uk and enter the code TRUE. Just think what you might find during the clear-out. Filling a box for vintage cash cow sounds like a good way to begin a big job. That's how detectives work. Just start small. Good luck. Okay, let's quickly set some context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. Number three in the UK chart was Steps with Tragedy. Oh, come on. It's a classic. In the US, the top spot was filled by Brandy and Have You Ever. And in Australia, the top selling album of this year was Come Over Here from Shania Twain. In the news this month, President Bill Clinton's impeachment trial began in the US Senate after the House voted to impeach him for lying about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. The Sopranos, starring the much-missed James Gandolfini as mobster Tony Soprano, debuted on HBO. Supernatural horror film The Blair Witch Project premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Were you a fan? And after an inquiry into a corruption scandal, six International Olympic Committee members were expelled. I know, It's the same as the corruption in FIFA and so many of these bodies. Surely not corruption. And finally, England national football team manager Glenn Hoddle gave an interview to the Times newspaper in which he suggested that people born with disabilities are paying for sins in a previous life. He rightly paid for these ludicrous and hurtful comments with his job. Did you guess the month and year? Yep, it was January 1999. So this week's story takes us to Norfolk and the remote village of Upwell in the Fens, which is about 35 miles north of Cambridge and about 50 miles west of Norwich. Renowned for being very flat and featureless, the Fens can often feel remote and isolated, even in the summer. The flat landscape and lack of trees can appear bleak, eerie and desolate giving a strange impression that it would be easy to get lost despite the lack of features. But it's exactly this backdrop that attracts so many people. I guess it's why Peterborough is such a tourist attraction. Many people find the Fens has a beauty all of its own, and enjoy the solitude such a remote location affords. Such a couple were Constance Sheridan, known as Connie, who when we pick up the story today was 79 and lived with her 45-year-old daughter Janice. They lived in a small detached house with their 27 dogs. (laughs) Yep, 27 dogs. Where they lived provided privacy and it was the perfect environment for breeding their prize-winning whippets. They described the house to friends as just perfect for them and the area was idyllic, which was just ideal for what they wanted to do with their lives. Janice was well known to the few locals who lived nearby and could often be found walking her dogs up and down the riverbank or around the local roads, fields and tracks. In 1994, Janice took a job at the local Greyhound Kennels. Experienced with horses and dogs, Janice was the perfect employee. Cordial and polite, she was always on time for work, and I mean on time. She didn't arrive at 10 to 8 or 10 past, she arrived at 8am sharp every single working day. So on the morning of Sunday the 10th of January 1999, when Janice failed to turn up for work, her boss John Bromley found it very strange. The morning was an icy one with a covering of frost, and although only a mile away from where Janice lived, John thought that she'd perhaps suffered an accident in her car. Maybe she'd skidded off the road into one of the many dikes that run parallel to the roads in the area. His wife Sylvia went to have a drive on the route that Janice would take to get to work to check that nothing had happened. She drove the route and on arrival at the house, she saw the house was all shut up with no one around. The car was still on the drive and dogs could be heard barking in the house. Initially thinking that maybe... Connie and Janice weren't very well, maybe laid up with flu, she left. But the situation went around her head, and it just didn't feel right to her. So a few hours later, when there was still no sign of Janice, she went back out. Only this time she peered through windows, she banged on the door, and she shouted through the letterbox. There was no response and no reply. She could see the dogs had not been tended to, and she began to become alarmed. Worried about what may have happened, Sylvia called the police. On arrival, two officers forced entry into the house and told Sylvia to wait outside. Both of them returned about 15 minutes later, and as they did so, Sylvia noticed they were both visibly shaken and ashen-faced. They instructed Sylvia to go home and told her that someone would speak to her in due course and what the officers had seen that day would stay with them for the rest of their lives. The sights, the smells. Both women had been killed. They had been subject to the most brutal attack and had suffered numerous stab wounds. The house was subject to forensic analysis, and detectives carefully went over the crime scene. It was clear that the killer had not hurried and spent some time there. Why was that? Indeed, the city had been pushed against the living room door to restrict access. The crime appeared to have been committed purposefully. It was methodical, almost in stages. And Constance had been laid on the city with her arms placed across her chest, almost posed. Whether this had happened before or after her death was unknown. She had suffered eight stab wounds to her chest, one to her stomach and one to her arm. Janice had been stabbed once in the back, twice in the neck and six times in the chest. She had not been sexually assaulted but her breasts were exposed and her trousers removed which clearly suggested some form of sexual motive. Her ankles were bound together with black tape and forensics revealed her hands too had been bound before the tape was removed suggesting that either she was kept alive after her mum was murdered or else that she was restrained whilst the killer waited for her mother to return home. There was no evidence of robbery and nothing seemed to be missing from the house. Unusually, it appeared that the killer locked the front door after committing the crime and took the women's keys with them. The senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent Ian Sturgis, later said that in his career, he'd investigated a number of murders involving stabbings highlighted this one as particularly brutal. And his colleague, Detective Inspector Paul Chapman said, personally in my career, I've never seen a crime scene like that. And Can we really picture what it must be like for a police officer to walk into that sort of scene? I'm not sure that I can. Very early on in the investigation, there was what appeared to be a small breakthrough when forensics revealed a thumb mark on the half of the fireplace very near to where Janice's head had been. Detectives were very interested in this fingerprint and were of the opinion that whoever it belonged to had been the killer of the two women. Also DNA analysis from swabs from Janice's breasts revealed Janice's DNA, but there was also another DNA present. Tiny traces of a man, which of course became of key interest. There was, however, frustration and disappointment from detectives when the thumbprint found on the hearth failed to match any existing criminal records. What was baffling detectives the most was how the killer managed to gain entry to the house which belonged to two intensely private women. There was no forced entry to the scene so detectives surmised that at least one of the women must have known the killer and had allowed them inside so detectives began to look at the local Fenland community. Initially, local suspicion and gossip was centred on her boss at the kennels, John Bromley, being one of the very few people who was close to Janice. Police had asked for information about Janice's private life, if she had one that is, and to see if there was some disgruntled boyfriend or similar, but it didn't seem to be the case. So as John was the only man she had any real contact with outside of the family, it made sense to look at him first. He found being under such scrutiny very stressful, understandably, and when asked about this period later he said, I wouldn't recommend it. John was discounted from the inquiry at an early stage. Time rolled on without any further breakthrough, and as the four-week anniversary of the murders approached, Detectives were concerned that it could have been a local man and he could strike again. Surely anyone who could carry out such a crime in such a calm, calculating fashion was entirely capable of killing more people. With 70 officers now working on the case, they were still searching for that breakthrough but it just wasn't coming. Police took the drastic action of mass fingerprinting the whole of the local community. This was every man, woman and child over the age of 12. They also offered a £25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer. This reward was one of the largest offered by police force at the time and it was the first time that Norfolk police had taken such a step. Detectives uncovered that the Sheridans had been burgled two years before and Janice had also been involved in a dispute with travellers is she was trying to stop moving into the village. At first it was suspected that the motive for murder might be connected to one of these, or maybe to her success in the dog breeding circuit. Perhaps it was a jealous rival, and officers investigating the case attended the world-famous dog show Cruft, where Connie and Janice were well known for their award-winning whippets. But none of these leads gave detectives what they were looking for. And three months down the line, it seemed they were no nearer to catching the killer. But this was about to change and it looked as though the murderer's luck was about to start running out. Pinglebridge, where the house was situated, was on a dirt track and it's a dead-end road that doesn't lead anywhere. There was no reason at all for anyone to go down there without a particular reason. Police were confident by now that the killer had really taken his time at the scene. He probably stayed overnight and left the next morning. As you will know, if, like me, you live in a small, secluded community, everyone knows each other and they also know each other's routines, so anything or anyone out of the ordinary tends to stand out and the vigilance of the local community was about to give police that breakthrough. A local couple reported seeing a large rover car travelling along the road, with the driver appearing to wear a rather unconvincing black curly wig. The couple compared it to Bobby Ball, the late comedy genius. This vehicle sighting was corroborated by a local farmer who had seen an unfamiliar car parked near to Connie and Janice's house on the weekend of the murders. He considered the car so significant. That he memorized the number and recorded it when he got home. How many times have you done that? Yep, me too. However, a check on the vehicle index number drew a blank, leading detectives to, to believe that the farmer had memorized it wrong, which apparently is not uncommon in police inquiries. So they carried out checks on similar numbers and came up with a group of owners. One of these was a man called Kevin Cottrell. His car started with the same numbers as the index number the farmer had remembered, G567. Further inquiries revealed he was known to Connie and Janice as he was a double glazing salesman and had visited their home previously. Kevin Cottrell quickly became a person of interest to the police. Detectives went to his house on the premise of taking a witness statement, but they were really there to take his fingerprints which they did, and by lunchtime the following day, they had a positive match with the thumb mark on the hearth. Confident they now had the killer, officers were again sent to his house and he was arrested. Detective Sergeant Jim Kinnear made the arrest. On his arrival, Cottrell was stood on the drive of his house and just looking at the detectives. When told he was under arrest for the double murder of two women, he made no response or remark at all. Jim Kinnear later said, he was cautioned and formally placed under arrest and there was absolutely no reaction from him. Over the years, I've made many arrests. The more serious the offence, the more people tend to react to it. When we arrested Kotrol, there was no reaction, none at all. He merely asked if he could change his slippers. I remember that after all these years. It was odd then and it's odd now. So who was Kevin Cottrell? Police began to build up a picture of the type of person they were dealing with. He was a local man and grew up in the area, in the village of Pentney, where he still lived with his dad. He had a previous conviction dating back to 1983, when he was a teenager. However, fingerprints were not routinely taken from juvenile offenders back then. And on that crime... He'd broken into the house for a couple who were away at the time and he'd masturbated over the bedding and underwear of the woman who lived there. In recent years he'd found work as a door-to-door salesman more recently for a double glazing company. This may seem strange to many of us now with the internet and sales and services so readily at hand we don't really see door-to-door selling too much, do we? Apart from the odd religious group and perhaps some canvassing by a local MP at election time. These things are pretty rare now. But back in the late 1990s, it was quite common. Probably not the easiest way of making a living. But of course, with enhanced vetting being mandatory for most jobs, dealing closer with the public, particularly home visits, his conviction would probably have barred him from such employment now. But 23, 24 years ago, there were no such safeguards in place. To his friends, Cottrell was a smartly-dressed, successful businessman. But the reality was, he had no money and he couldn't hold a job down for any period of time. Now, how many times in these podcasts have we seen this, where reality just doesn't match the picture painted to others, the so-called Facebook effect? One of the detectives made his thoughts about him quite clear, saying, Kevin Cottrell? was one of life's losers. Several items were taken by the police from his house for forensic testing. Meanwhile Cottrell was subject to four days of intensive questioning. Initially, he presented as a laid-back, friendly and helpful kind of guy. Confident of his methodology and care at the crime scene, he was probably confident there'd be nothing to connect him to the murders. The pressure was also on the police with a limited time which they could hold him without charge. So two days in, detectives changed tack in the interview room. They began to introduce the suspected sexual element of the crime, and this seemed to have a profound effect on Cottrell. Gone was the laid-back, easy-going manner. He noticeably withdrew, and it was very clear from his body language that he was uncomfortable. Police knew he'd been in the house seven months before and measured up for a window. Cottrell was adamant he'd only been in the conservatory and not the main house. And police were still waiting for the items taken from the house to come back from forensics and with time running out, they played their trump card, pointing out there was evidence he'd been in other parts of the house, if you remember the thumbprint on the hearth. At this point, Cottrell changed his story and conceded he had been in the house, not just the conservatory. With the deadlines release him fast approaching, on the 27th of April 1999, police charged Cottrell with the murders of Constance and Janice. A short time later, the forensics tests returned from the lab, and proved that the DNA found on Janice's breast was Cottrell's, and blood found on a bag in his house was that of Connie and Janice and a shoe print found at the scene matched a boot owned by Cottrell. Despite this evidence beginning to stack up, Cottrell still pronounced his innocence. However, on the first day of the trial at Norwich Crown Court, after a short discussion with his barrister, he changed his plea to guilty. Detectives on the case were in no doubt about his motive for doing so, pointing out it was not done out of sympathy or respect to the family to spare them the ordeal of a trial, but it was done for his own ends, to hopefully secure a lighter tariff. As you know, in England and Wales, murder carries a mandatory life sentence, but the judge sets that tariff. Passing sentence, the judge told Cottrell, these were terrible and terrifying offences. How they came to be committed is not clear, but that they were committed and committed by you is abundantly clear. There is only one sentence. He was given two life sentences with the judge recommending that he serve at least 20 years before being considered for parole. Cottrell's QC said in mitigation, In answer to the question why, I cannot provide anything at all. Janice's sister Diana spoke after the trial and said, I was quite dumbstruck when I heard he was pleading guilty. We are just devastated. And we just want to know why. We want to know why and we need to know. We were hoping we might get some answers during the trial, but we still don't know. The last year has been just unimaginable. What do you make of the sentence then? Under modern sentencing, guidance for murder starts at a 15-year tariff and a judge can add time for aggravating factors and reduce it for things such as previous good character or an early guilty plea. Aggravating factors are factors that make an offence even more serious and increase the minimum term. These include, amongst others, a significant degree of planning or premeditation, the fact that the victim was particularly vulnerable because of age or disability, mental or physical suffering inflicted on the victim before death, and the abuse of a position of trust. Do you think any of these were present in this case? I think so, don't you? and also taken into account as a double murder, it could be said that Cottrell was dealt with very leniently. Indeed, it's understandable, I think, that there was considerable shock at the length of the sentence. Detective Sergeant Jim Kinnear said of Cottrell after the trial, we never did find the weapon that he used, and again, I'll stick my neck out and state that Kevin Cottrell still has that weapon hidden away somewhere. In my own personal opinion, as far as women are concerned, he's one of the most dangerous individuals I have ever met. There is, as often seems to be the case with high-profile offenders, a website proclaiming his innocence. This points to a lack of motive. He'd made a successful sale at the property, so why come back and carry out such a brutal offence? This is the point of it, doesn't it? There's also comment that the car the police had originally looked for was green and Cottrell's was silver. So there are certainly some points there that Cottrell is pursuing. But I once heard someone take this view. With any murder, people often talk about a jigsaw puzzle. But any experienced murder detective I've spoken to will tell you it's not a jigsaw, as in almost all cases, there's always some pieces of information missing. Some things that are never found out and some pieces left over. Evidence that never fits. But did the court have enough to convict? Absolutely. So what do you make of what we've heard today? As I seem to say every week, another shocking crime. Mind you, I guess it is a true crime podcast. There's been no mention in the press about Cottrell being released or indeed moved to open conditions. So we can only presume that as you listen, he's still languishing in a prison cell somewhere in the country. As he reflects on his life and crimes, as he must do, we can only hope surely that one day he'll provide the answers to those family and friends who desperately need them. And looking back on the case, our thoughts of course are with Janice and Connie and their family and friends. I just can't understand why anyone would want to hurt two such gentle women living a solitary life, breeding their whippets, just not bothering anyone. Can you? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast and especially to Matt for the research and writing of this episode. To discuss this story, please head to Facebook, search UK True Crime and you'll find 85,000 of us. Talking UK True Crime 24-7, 365 days a year. And to support the show, and why wouldn't you? Please do head along to patreon.com/slash uk true crime. There's loads of bonus episodes, competitions, behind the scenes content, and apparently supporters on Patreon are better looking and more popular than other members of the population. com slash UK true crime. Okay, so that's all for this week from the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcaster. Please join me again this time next week for another story, but until then, until we speak again, please do take it easy, and most of all, despite all the others, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.